it was what informed prayer and there was so much prayer going on in that congregation. It was, it was present, spiritual life was just present in everything it seemed. And it appeared to me that people were being converted virtually every week. There were baptisms taking place and, and not just people moving the waters of baptism. You could really see as you stayed in that church transformation taking place and lives were lining up with the scripture and I I even witnessed that transformation in our own family our family was about to fall apart and the Lord breathed life spiritual life into our family and and kept us together and even through that period opened up my eyes the Lord did and let me see the gospel and brought me from death to life it was a really fantastic period to see a church that was spiritually thriving and vibrant. And it was not long after we entered that time of life and our family was transformed that my father indicated to me that he was called to pastoral ministry, which shocked me. I wanted nothing to do with being a preacher's kid. I knew what kind, kind of eyes came with that. But my life had been changed by the gospel and and I knew I, I needed to follow whatever he wanted us to do as a family. And so we left that vibrant church and went to another church that actually needed some reviving. There are a lot of wonderful people in that congregation and some were really running hard after the Lord and that was very evident. But for the most part, I would look back on that time period and say that was a church that was not spiritually thriving. They're kind of stuck in a lot of their old, old ways of how they just did church. And while the Bible was preached, it didn't seem to be thriving in the life of the congregation. It was a church that was in need of spiritual revival. And so we scheduled them every year. In October and in April, we scheduled revival. And we expected that God would revive us. And it would be a whole week-long series of services you've been to that before you're part of that and you, you scheduled them too in the fall and the spring because that's when most people came to church so that's when you would schedule revival and you would pray for that and you'd have special emphasis each night to bring people in and we'd bring in a special speaker and special music and I saw some wonderful things happen through that to be honest I saw some people's lives change but the reality is for the most part on the whole a week or two after revival, we were normal again. And that went on year after year after year until it seemed like something happened in the culture. Something happened in churches. We kind of jettisoned that approach to scheduling revival, you know, spring and fall. And it brought about what we likely refer to today as the attractional church or the seeker sensitive church because in the waning period of that approach to scheduling revival someone got the bright idea why don't why don't we do this every week why don't we just do this every week and we will make church attractive to people and make it look like something that is alive and vibrant and full of the life of God and we'll make it practical and and we did that and churches grew, large, mall-like facilities, student ministries filled with arcade-like facilities, children's ministry that looked like a theme park. 
I mean, you would show up to these places and if you, if you walked into that place, you could feel the liveliness and the excitement there. The problem was, as these churches went on and on, there was really very little transformation of life that took place. The people in the church didn't look much different than the neighborhood that surrounded them in terms of their marriages and their parenting and their own personal life and their work life. They got a lot of practical tips from relevant Bible-centered, Bible-used sermons, but there wasn't a lot of transformation. And when that movement began to wane, there emerged a new movement called the Emerging Church. And they didn't like all of the approaches to attractional ministry that rose up in suburbia. And they wanted to go back into the inner city and do real ministry. And they wanted to touch the hurting and they wanted to be more open and more authentic was the word. And they got real. And sermons were dialogues, not monologues where you listen to what God would say. It's a dialogue as if we had a voice that God needed to hear. And we're kind of on par with him and we're, we're going to chat with him and his word and truth was negotiable and that went on and it looked alive for a while. It didn't change anybody's life. It left people in their sin. It didn't really change their marriages or their parenting. In fact, it was corroding people's lives. That's why we don't hear much about it anymore. You say, well, what's the new movement today that tries to drum up spiritual life? It's hard to see. I, I think we're in the hybrid age, don't you? We're in the age that tries to take whatever we can find from whatever movement and put it together and merge it all together and see what comes out. And you have to wonder, how much spiritual vibrancy do you see in the typical landscape of our spiritual landscape of our country lives changing true conversions taking place marriages coming back together that were torn apart children seeing the power of the gospel in their homes and being convicted of their sin the word of God being preached and taught and people well you might see that in some pockets I think there's a longing among us to be part of something exciting something vibrant, something thrilling, something compelling. And people tend to gravitate towards churches with the look and the feel of vibrancy. But are you seeing true spiritual transformation? The look and feel of spiritual vibrancy is not always the reality of spiritual transformation, is it? In other words, you can build a gathering that everyone assumes is full of life when in reality it's dead. That's the ancient church in Sardis. It's that kind of church. Sardis is the church of the living dead. It's a church that has a reputation in the community and probably has a reputation among all the other churches as being a church that is alive but in reality, it is full of spiritual death. And if it's not really revived, if they don't have true revival, not the kind that you can schedule, 
but the kind of revival that reorients their entire perspective and the way they think about all of life in light of what Christ says, then that ministry is not just one that is dying and decaying, it is one that will face eternal ruin and lead people into eternal ruin. So it begs the question as we look at the church of Sardis this morning, How do you revive a church that looks like it's spiritually vibrant, but inside it's full of death, spiritual death? How do you help a congregation that has a reputation in the community as being alive, but when you look at what the Lord says about the church, he would mark it as being dead, Well, this letter breaks down into five distinct parts. And so those five distinct parts are going to be the five different ways we're going to look at this morning of how to revive a dead or a dying church, even though it looks alive. What if we're that church? Because I look around here and there's a lot of activity that goes on. There's a lot of activity. You walk through the halls here on a Sunday morning and and you're bumping shoulders with lots of people. And most of you look pretty happy too. It's like you enjoy being here. Our classes seem to be full of people. I mean, have you ever had to sit in the hallway of one of our classes? You're like, "Mm, I'm not so happy with that. I mean, you can just see the Lord is doing something. There's more people here than there were a number of months ago, a number of years ago. And it seems like there's a lot of things happening, a lot of activities that are going on, a lot of encouraging ministry that seems to be taking place. What's Jesus' evaluation of our church? And what if he looked at us and said, yeah, it's a lot of activity. But is it spiritually transformative? It's one thing for us to point the finger. It's another thing for us to look internally, isn't it? And we need to. If the Lord were to evaluate our church and say, I think you're a church that's on the precipice of spiritual death, how would you revive the church? Maybe you've been a part of a church like that. Looks full, looks exciting, looks vibrant, but it's decaying and there's no real gospel transformation taking place. What would you do to help a church regain true spiritual vibrancy? Well, let's talk through five different ways to revive a dead and a dying church, even though it looks alive. The first way is found in verse one and it's, Sounds very similar to what we've heard throughout all of these letters. You need to focus your attention. Focus your attention, first of all, on the true evaluator of spiritual vibrancy. Who's the one who really evaluates spiritual vibrancy? Who does that? Well, we know it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But do we know that? Are we really focused on him and his evaluation of our church? And how would we even know what his evaluation of the church is? Well, if you look at yourself and you look at your own ability to evaluate whether you or others, our church or any other church has true spiritual life, we're probably not going to get the full picture because we're limited by our own personal opportunity, our own personal limitations of seeing what's true. But if you want a clear picture, 
You've got to look to Christ because he's the one who knows. He's the one who knows. You see it in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Once again, the Lord Jesus uses an angel to dispatch to this ancient first century Christian congregation to deliver a specific message to this church along with the rest of the book of Revelation that informs them of his coming. And this time it's delivered to that ancient church in the city of Sardis. And Sardis is not a city that's mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only mentioned in chapter 1 of Revelation and here. But it was an infamous city in the ancient world. And like most of these cities that we're talking about, it had a very long storied history. And it's a fascinating history to go back and look at. Won't benefit us to look at all the details, but just to trace a few things about this city. It's a little more than 30 mile, miles south of Thyatira. It's about 45 miles due east of the city of Smyrna and the church of Smyrna that we've already considered. In earlier centuries, it was the capital city of the region called Lydia and it became famous for the wealth under one of its leaders, Croesus. Supposedly, gold was found in the river Pactolus, which ran through the city, and not only gold in the river, but they seemed to find it in the sand surrounding the river. So it became a very wealthy and influential city. It was famous for its wealth, the wealth of Croesus. It was famous also for its woven textiles. It was known for that. There's a fascinating account of King Croesus who went and attacked the Persians and the Persian king Cyrus and was successful in attacking the Persians and withdrew back into the city of Sardis and they came back into the city which was tucked away, surrounded by what they thought were impregnable mountain cliffs. And King Croesus went back into the city and he actually disbanded his army. He was so confident in his victory, he disbanded his army and they bedded down for the winter, not realizing that Cyrus and the Persians They'd stirred up a hornet's nest and they had come to the city of Sardis and surrounded the city, but no worries there. They went to bed at night and thought nothing of being surrounded because nobody could take the city until they woke up in the morning and those impassable cliffs had been scaled and the Persians were descending into the city and took the city while they slept. They thought they were strong, they thought they were vibrant, they thought they were wealthy, they thought they were lively, and then they found themselves dead. What a message to the city of Sardis, huh? One of the most significant discoveries in the city of Sardis also was a synagogue. That's not too uncommon. There were synagogues in many of these ancient cities. If you go there today to many of these ancient cities, you'll find synagogues there but this was a unique one this was a synagogue that could seat over a thousand people at one time very significant saying and showing us that in this city was a very significant Jewish population now the time that this letter was written that synagogue was not as large then but it grew to be that size around the second or third centuries 
But nonetheless, it shows us there was a significant Jewish population in this region. In fact, there's been excavation of that. Our family, perhaps you have as well, we've walked through that very long synagogue that they've exposed and they've found in there not only uh, excavation of artifacts that would show a thriving synagogue, but people who were noted to be very wealthy within the Jewish community in that city. Very influential. It was like most other cities and it had other temples devoted to other gods. You can to this day go up to the Acropolis of Sardis and you can walk through the ruins of the temple devoted to Artemis. It's quite impressive in terms of affluence and influence. It rivaled cities like Smyrna and Ephesus. It was a lively city. And yet Jesus wants to address this church in this lively city because evidently this church mimicked a lot of the qualities and characteristics of the city itself. The church looked alive. The church looked full and it looked vibrant and likely had wealthy people who were a part of it. You would look at this church and you would say, that's the kind of church I really want to be a part of. Looks alive. In addressing this church, do you see three different aspects of Jesus' nature he wants to put on display so he can expose the true vibrancy or lack thereof in them? What you see is again Jesus putting himself on display in three different aspects that make him the only one who can actually evaluate the true spiritual nature of this church and reminds us It doesn't really matter what anybody else says about our church or what we say about our church. It matters what the Lord himself says about our church. Why? Well, I want you to see who he is and why he's the only evaluator that we can look to. Well, first, he's the one who gives the spirit. He's the one who gives the spirit. That's significant. You see it in verse 1. He who has the seven spirits of God. Now this particular aspect of Christ is not mentioned directly in the vision that John had of Christ in chapter 1. It's actually mentioned before the vision took place in Revelation 1 verse 4 where John introduces himself and says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We're going to see that same seven-fold description of the Holy Spirit mentioned in chapter 4, verse 5, and we'll see it again in chapter 5, verse 6. It is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But it's an odd reference to the Holy Spirit to our ears, isn't it? How often do we actually hear the Holy Spirit described as the sevenfold spirit, the seven spirits of God? Not often, it's just here in the book of Revelation. And one other place. It's found in Zechariah 4. And we looked at this when we considered the opening chapter, but do it again, all right? Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 4. I just want you to see the reference because likely this is John receiving this vision and God is giving him this vision of Christ who says he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and he does that so that their minds would go back to Zechariah 4. This passage in Zechariah 4 predicts and speaks about the temple 
that a Jewish governor, Zerubbabel, built. He led a group of Jews back to the promised land from Babylonian captivity and he was beginning to rebuild the temple. It would not be a temple as grand or great as that as as what Solomon built and it would pale in comparison to the temple that Herod would build during build during the days of Jesus. But nonetheless, it was reestablishing the temple. It's often referred to as Zerubbabel's temple. And this passage refers to that, but Zerubbabel's temple, it just had little might and liveliness to it like others had. And yet, reestablishing that temple meant that God's presence had come back into the land with his people. And Zechariah receives a vision connected to Zerubbabel and not just the small temple that he would build, but that small temple would, would be used to indicate one day a greater temple would come here, an eternal temple would come here. Notice verse 2, Zechariah 4. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Now you remember inside the temple of Solomon was the seven branched lampstand, right? So this is a reference to the lampstand that would have been found inside the precincts of the temple. Verse 3 says, as two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. And those olive trees are going to come back in the book of Revelation later in chapter 10. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I love the way the Lord just kind of plays with us at times to tease it out. So you really don't know what that is. And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but what? By my spirit. You know that, that don't you? By my spirit, says the Lord. Well, remember, the seven-branch candlestick was a representation to the Jewish people of the ever-present spirit. That's what it represented to the people, the ever-present spirit, the light of God that shines throughout the world, the presence of his, of his might, seeing and knowing everything. And this little temple of Zerubbabel that didn't look very big and didn't look very powerful, the Lord says, do you see that seven-branch candlestick? It's not by might that you're going to be significant. It's not by power. It's by the Spirit who's represented in this candlestick. Verse 7, what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, meaning the temple, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. And notice verse 10, for who has despised the day of small things? Do you think this temple's small? Do you think this is insignificant? But these seven, notice, these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. What is this saying? 
That seven-branched lampstand represented the ever-present, all-knowing Spirit of God that moves all over the earth from this little temple that represented God's presence. It describes the Spirit as having eyes that run all over the earth. He's complete in his knowledge. He's present everywhere. When Jesus says he is the one who possesses the seven spirits of God. What is he saying? I am the one who has and dispenses and has the knowledge of the fullness of the spirit of God. In fact, we learn in many places in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is actually operative, it's actually Jesus who is operative. Where the Spirit is present in the lives of people, you have genuine spiritual life. It's not by mind, it's not by power that you accomplish true liveliness, it's by the Spirit and His presence that that takes place. Jesus would say in John fifteen twenty six, when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The spirit and Christ are linked together inextricably. Acts 2.33, statement is made, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see and hear. When Jesus ascended to heaven, what came to earth? The Spirit. The Spirit and Jesus are inextricably connected. Where the physical presence of Jesus is not with us, we receive the presence of God in the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Son and from the Father. And it is the Spirit, not our ability, it is the Spirit that gives us life. That's where true vibrancy comes from. And where the Spirit is not truly inhabiting, there's no true spiritual life. In fact, the church is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 as a temple of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit came, it unleashed the new covenant and unleashed the new revelation of God through the new covenant, through Christ. Where the presence of the Spirit is, Christ is. Where Christ is, you'll find his Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not of God. Romans 8, 9. So how do you know if you have the Spirit? Well, before I answer that question, I want you to see the next thing he points out in Revelation. 1, 3, 1. It's not only that it has the seven spirits of God, but notice what's in connection with it. And he also has what? The seven stars. What are the seven stars? Well, we already know what that is. In chapter 1, verse 16, they're in his right hand, the seven stars. And in chapter 1, verse 20, we're told, as for the mystery of the seven stars, what you saw in my right hand, these are the, what? They're the angels, right? They're the angels dispatched to the churches. The seven stars are the seven angels that Jesus holds in his right hand and he actually controls them. They're the seven angels that bring the revelation of God to the churches. Put this together. How do you know that you have true spiritual life? You have the spirit of God and you have the revelation of God. 
And Christ controls and dispenses both of those things. In fact, the spirit and the word, both referred to here, are often linked together in the scriptures. Where you have the spirit, he moves in concert with the word. And where the word is honored, you find the presence of the spirit. They're not distinct from one another. They're a part of one another. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who evaluates the church. And I do so by the all-knowing spirit of God that comes and reveals himself through the word. That is the scriptures, the revelation of God. In fact, we see these connected together. In John chapter 4, you remember when Jesus has the conversation with the woman who's at the well? The woman who is living in all kinds of sin and adultery? And she keeps wanting to start an argument rather than talk about her sin? You remember that? And she says, oh, you're just a, you're a Jewish male who's trying to pick on a Samaritan woman and so she, she fires back and says, you Jews say that we're, we're going to worship in Jerusalem and, and we've got a well over here in Samaria and we think this is the mountain where you're going to worship. Remember what Jesus said to her? In John 4, verse 23, he said, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit and in... That's not two different things. They go together in the spirit, in connection with the truth. If you really want true worship, it has to be in the spirit, that is in the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is the Messiah's coming, and truth, which is his revelation. You won't go to a mountain to worship, you're gonna worship in the Messiah who brings the spirit and who brings truth, who brings the Holy Spirit and the revelation of God in the completion of his word. You can see it again, just to point this out in Ephesians chapter 4. You remember the command that we find in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, in Ephesians 4, a number of things happen. Verse 18 is the command, be filled with the Spirit. And then what happens? Or pardon me, it's chapter 5, verse 18. Verse 19, you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You sing and make melody with your, in your heart to the Lord. You're always giving thanks for all things. You're subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then it goes on to say, wives will be subject to their husbands. Husbands will love their wives. Children obey their parents. And parents will lead their children in the ways of the Lord. That's what happens when you're full of the Spirit. That's how he reflects it in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Colossians, which is a parallel book to Ephesians in chapter 3, you see the same kinds of things. Saying thanks, wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving wives, children obeying parents. You see those same qualities, but they're not described as being from the Spirit. You know where they come from? Colossians 3.16 produces it. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. So which is it? Is it the Spirit or the word? You're catching on. Yes. You don't divide the spirit and the word. The scriptures are the breath of God. The very, we, we talk of it as inspiration. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, theopneustos, 
theos god, pneuma, which means breath or can be translated as spirit. The word and the spirit go together. And I spend time on that because this is so critical. No church possesses the spirit who minimizes the word. You can't have the spirit if you minimize the word. You can't be full of the life of the spirit if you're not radically full of the word of his revelation. That's why Jesus, in his evaluation, the tools of his evaluation are his spirit and the word. The one who has the comprehensive knowledge of the ever-present spirit and who is the very life of the church and he governs the church by the word, this is the one who evaluates. This is who evaluates. He's the one who then who knows the heart, right? If he has the spirit, if he governs the word, he knows the heart. And that's what Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know them. You know, we've seen this phrase. He said this same thing to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 5. He said it to Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 19. He'll say it to Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 8. He's going to say the same thing to Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 15. I know your deeds. I think that's fascinating. The one who knows the inside of you knows your actions. He focuses on your actions because your actions reveal your heart. He knows not only their activity. He knows what they're doing, but he knows why they're doing it. He knows the nature of their deeds, the motivations behind the deeds, the affections tied to the deeds. He knows where the deeds are leading and the consequences tied to those deeds. He knows more about their actions than they themselves could ever know about what they're doing. What a truth for us to think about. He knows what's behind every action every habit, every word, every relationship, every purchase you make, every sacrifice you give, all that we ever do, he knows. He knows when you read your Bible and why you read it or if you read it. He knows whether you're really meditating on it or if you're just going through the motions. He knows your prayer life. He knows why you pray and what you pray, what you're praying for. He knows the people you like to be around and why you like to be around them. He knows who you don't like to be around and why you don't like to be around them. He knows why you're here this morning and why you choose not to gather on the Lord's Day with God's people. He knows why you read the things you read and why you read them and what you do with your life and what you listen to and why you listen to it. He knows what your fears are and what drives you to act in particular ways in front of certain people because he's the one who possesses the ever-present, all-knowing spirit who evaluates everything by his word. He knows the nature of everything. Now, in particular with the church in Sardis, he knows about their deeds and what's tied to those deeds. And he says that you have a name. Or if you're using the English Standard Version, it says a reputation. It's literally the word for name. But you're known in the community for being alive. Life 
is in the title of your church. Everybody thinks of you as alive, but you're dead. How can you say that? Because he knows. He knows whether you have the spirit and what you're doing with the word. And he says, you look alive, but you're dead. Name is important here, that word for name, or if you're looking at the ESV reputation, it's actually found a number of other times in this little letter. It's found in chapter 3, verse 4. You have a few people in Sardis. You see that word people in the New American Standard? That's the word name. You have a few names in Sardis. Verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I'll confess his name. Name is important. Your name represents you and who you are and what's true about you. And they have a name that they're alive. And matter of fact, the word for have is in the present tense, meaning this is something they're known for all the time. Everybody thinks of this church as being alive. When you think of the church in Sardis, all you think of is life, liveliness, vibrancy. I mean, this was probably a live Avenue Baptist church here, don't you think? I think their motto probably was a church alive is worth the drive, something like that, you know? (laughs) I actually knew a church that had that motto. I mean, they're they're lively. It's the congregation, just in modern terms, they have all the right people in it. They've got all the right people. They've got all the right programs. I mean, you go to their children's ministry and you think, wow. You look at their adult classes and it's just enjoyable. Small groups, they've got them. Evangelism teams, they're everywhere. They're sending teams of people to every, every place that you can imagine. They, they care for the poor. They care for the sick. Nobody falls through the cracks in their church. I mean, they're into all of the unique kinds of ministry of foster care and adoption. They got music teams and youth ministries and young adult and ministry to older singles and younger singles. They care for those with addictions and they have groups for widows, those who have never been married. Perhaps they have so many different kinds of ministries they couldn't list list them all, couldn't keep up with them. Everybody's just doing something. Everybody in the church is just serving. Wonderful, isn't it? Everybody looks at this church and they love them. That's what every church kind of wants, isn't it? You want to be known as lively, alive. You want people in the community to look at you and say, you're really with it. You're exciting. Did you read about a church in our area? It has life in their name. And today, across their multiple campuses, they've redesigned the four-year area and their worship center areas to be Super Bowl stadiums. And the pastor who preaches to all the campuses is going to do a series of sermons called 30-Second Theology, where he takes commercials, popular commercials, and finds biblical truths from the commercials. They got promoted on the news this week. Nobody showed up here to talk to us. I mean, the best we've got, some of you wore a jersey. (laughs) 
pastor wore a red tie. I mean, that's as exciting as it gets. What's spiritual life? Where's the spirit in the word? What do you do with the word? That'll tell you if the spirit's there. And based on the emphasis that we see about Jesus' nature, it's likely this church was devoid of the spirit. This church in Sardis, devoid of the word. Devoid of the spirit because he says they're dead. I gather they did a lot of things. I know your deeds, he says. They're active. They're active. But the nature of that activity was devoid of the Holy Spirit. Perpetually busy. Have a reputation for liveliness. And Jesus says, there's nothing there. You know how that happens? When we become so preoccupied with our name in the community. Now listen, I think we ought to have a certain name in the community. And it doesn't need to be a poor name in terms of our character. It needs to be a name that says... They care so much about Jesus, it really does mark the way they live their life. Whatever he says in the Bible, they seem to go after with everything in them. And it comprises a certain kind of people and they watch over each other and they care for one another because of what Jesus says. And you can see it in how they relate to one another in their marriages and their relationships and their fellowship. You see it everywhere because the word is driving it. You can't be preoccupied with what the community thinks about your own vibrancy. That's not an excuse to be spiritually dead and lifeless. It's a reminder life is found in the word that comes from the spirit. And the only evaluation that really matters, it's not yours, it's not mine, it's not the community's. Whose is it? The one who has the spirit and the word. He knows. If we would preoccupy ourselves, if every local congregation would preoccupy themselves with what his evaluation is found in the word as he possesses the spirit, we would overcome spiritual death. We'd have true life. Let's look at another way to revive a spiritually dead church. It's found in verses two to three. You have to follow the path back to spiritual vibrancy. If you find yourself a dead or a dying church, even though you look alive, how do you get back to the place of true vibrancy? Well, you've got to follow the path. And this is very clear here. It's not hard to see it in verses 2 to 3. Do you see it? Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. What's the path? You can follow it. What's the first mark? Wake up. Wake up. Literally, it's a two-word phrase. Become alert. Become alert. Make yourself awake. And that's a really important term throughout the New Testament. It's found twice in this passage, both in verse 2 and verse 3. It's found in Revelation 16, 15. When Jesus says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. How many of you heard that this morning? Stay awake. He's watching you now. Stay awake. 
It's a very poignant picture for Sardis, right? Remember King Croesus? Attack the Persians, go back home, fall asleep, wake up the next morning and you're done because you weren't watching. You, you thought you were alive. That was Sardis, found yourself dead. That's why Jesus says it this way. They were caught sleeping. The city was known for that kind of attitude. To revive a dead church needs a congregation that kills spiritual pride about itself, looks at itself and prides itself on we're, we're alive, look at all of our deeds. No. Where's the spirit? Where's the word? Because our church will fall asleep if we assume spiritual life. You know that? If we assume it, we'll fall asleep. And that'll begin to impact virtually everything and we won't even realize that we're drifting off into spiritual unconsciousness we stop evaluating the spiritual character of the congregation as the scriptures define it then we're going to drift off into sleepiness so we have to be spiritual insomniacs don't we now I don't mean by that paranoid there's a difference between being alert and being paranoid we're not living in fear, we're living in alertness. We're so, we have, we have our spiritual senses tuned to the scriptures so that when error comes, we can re- respond to it. We're alert to it. We have to cultivate it. Are you ready to respond biblically to everything that happens around you? Are you thinking that way? Are you thinking with the grid of scripture and you're constantly praying that God will make your sensitivities aware and alert through the word? You have to be alert through things about things like false teaching, right? If you're not alert to false teaching, you will fall to it. Makes you sleepy. 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul told the elders in Ephesus, I was reading it this morning, my own prayer time, in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, what should we do about it? Be on the alert. Keep your sensitivities awake and alert. You have to be alert for your own temptations. You know what they are. You know what is unique to you. You know the kinds of things you're tempted to drift into. Are you spiritually alert and awake to them? You remember Jesus coming to the sleeping disciples in the garden, Matthew 26. He found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. You couldn't even pray for one hour as if one hour of prayer is nothing. Keep watching, there's our word. Be alert and praying that you will not enter into temptation. Why? The spirit wants it. Your internal being desires is willing, but the flesh is what? It's weak. It's weak. So you have to discipline yourself to be alert. How do you keep yourself alert? Many times the Bible says it's prayer. Keep watching and what? Praying. Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer, 
keeping alert in it with an attitude of thankfulness. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Be on the alert in prayer. If you pray biblically, you are begging God to keep yourself awake to what's going on. Wake up. Wake up. What's your prayer life like? Is it really tuned into the scriptures? Do you actually pray through the scriptures and meditate on the scriptures and beg God for the truth of the scriptures? Are you evaluating what's going on around you in light of what the scripture says and asking God to help you be discerning? Or are you falling asleep? Wake up. Second part of the path is build up. You see it in the next phrase in verse two, wake up, strengthen the things that remain. In fact, the force of the command here is to start strengthening. You haven't been doing it. You haven't been building yourself up. So start it, grow. Now they haven't been neglecting activity. They've been doing activity. There's a difference between doing things and growing. You're not growing. Now, there's a good thing here. There's a few things that remain that aren't quite all the way dead yet. Build them up. Strengthen. We're not told what these things are, but they're likely related to a kind of behavior that had a shell of morality or the outskirts of biblical behavior, but it didn't have the spiritual substance in it. How do we know that? Because those things that remain, he says, I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Strengthen what remains because I haven't looked at your deeds and found them to be full or complete. I've been searching. I've been searching all this time, even up to this very minute, and I haven't found your deeds to be absolutely full and complete. That's an interesting thought. The word completed means full or finished or it's reached its conclusion and interestingly that word completed is used a number of times in the book of Hebrews to describe Christians who are coming out of a Jewish context and they're slinking back into Judaism because the persecution against Christianity is making them say hey if we go back to Judaism I won't get persecuted like this again. Christianity's getting it harshly. Judaism didn't get that. So let's go back to Judaism. And Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews keeps saying, if you go back to Judaism, you're going back to something that's not complete. You say, why is that? If you just live out the Old Testament, you live out an incomplete kind of walk with God. Why? Because everything in the Old Testament was pointing to whom? Christ, he finishes, he completes, he fulfills what the Old Testament was pointing us to. To live outside of Christ is to live in something that's incomplete. And think back, this city had a large population of Jewish people. It could be, we're not certain, but it could be that rising persecution against the church and pressure is causing them to go back, just like the people in Hebrews were, to something not complete. Active, religious, doing religious deeds, but not with completion. Incomplete. Because you're trying not to bring on the opposition of the culture. That'll kill a church. 
You slink away from standing up for the truth. You won't strengthen the things that are incomplete. You won't be robustly Christian, distinctively Christ-centered as a church because you're afraid of what the culture thinks. You're dead. You're dead. Strengthen what you do have. Build it up. Wake up. Build up. Third, go back. Go back. So what do you mean go back? Verse three, remember what you've received and heard. Go back and remember. The same command was given to the church in Ephesus. Remember from where you've fallen. Go back to the fundamentals that you welcomed as a Christian, what you received. Do you remember what it was like when you came to faith in Christ? Do you remember the change that took place and the vibrancy and the lordship of Christ that was so powerful in your soul you were ready to do anything that he asked of you? That's how willing you were. He so consumed you. You would abandon any sin. If if he said, "I, I want you to go to Africa, you say, I'll go to Africa. If you said, I want, I want you to share the gospel with your neighbors. You're going over there and you're sharing the gospel with your neighbors. I mean, you'll do anything. And now, you need to go back and remember, what did you hear? What did you learn from the gospel? Go back. Stop mixing the gospel with the culture. Just go back to the pure, unadulterated truth of the word. Rehearse how you came to faith. Do you ever do that? Oh, we did that last night with some friends who came over and we were rehearsing our testimonies and just rehearsing our testimonies and hearing theirs and their just kind of reminds you of what the Lord has done. Do you keep a journal of what the Lord is doing in your life and what he's teaching you? Maybe sometimes it's helpful to just go back and read it again and remind yourself of what you were learning in those earlier days and how vibrant that was and full of life and full of the word. Maybe you need to be one of those who you're taking an equipping class like fundamentals of the faith that'll come up here now or systematic theology like, oh, dry, boring theology. Yeah, that kind of stuff that if you don't live within, you're dead. Remind yourself of who God is and who Christ is and what the church is about and reorient yourself to what you know to be true in the word. Stop trying to find something new. Stop trying to make theology vibrant by suggesting something new that nobody has ever seen. Just go back and remember what you have been taught. And after you go back, what do you do next? What's the path? Hold on. That's the next word. Keep it. Hold on to it. You remember it? Hold on to it. Grasp it. Obey it. Don't dull your public identity as a Christian because it's going to cost you something. Don't round off the edges of your Christian commitment because it feels too sharp in your community. No, be robustly Christ-centered. Hold on to it. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, there's going to be pushback. Hold on. If you want to be spiritually alive, you can't give way. That lulls you to sleep. Then what do you do? Turn around. What is that? Repent. Turn around. About face. Go the opposite direction. Think differently than you're thinking. Metanoeo is the word. Noeo, the mind. Meta, change. Turn. 
Change how you think so that you behave differently. You may have to reorient the whole way you think about church. You might have been in a church that looked alive but was spiritually dead and you show up in a church that's full of the word and you're like, I've never thought of church like that before. This is not the way they do it. I mean, there's no smoke here. Have you noticed there's no smoke on the platform that makes the lights really, really glisten? And that's another problem. We keep the lights on in here. Most really lively churches don't keep the lights on, right? Well, we actually want you to see each other. And it's not just about you and your personal relationship with God. It's us singing together because that's what the Bible calls us to do. And so we need to look at each other when we sing. Not just Dawson. Look at each other. Sing to one another. Sing out so everybody hears you. Because that's what the Bible calls you. In other words, stop thinking about church with a cultural mindset. Think about church with a biblical mind. Repent. Turn around. One more. Look out. See, what do you mean look out? Watch out. Beware. What do you mean? Well, at the end of verse 3, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Maybe this is going to be some discipline from the Lord that would come on this church in Sardis that would wipe it out, end its ministry. Could be. Could be a kind of wiping out of this church's existence as a judgment from the Lord because they simply would not go back to the Bible. But I think as we've been seeing in virtually all of the churches thus far, when Jesus warns, of his coming, he means his ultimate return. I'm coming. I'm coming in judgment. Will you find me as judge or as savior? When he warns them with his coming, he does so about his second coming. In fact, this language about the thief coming and you don't know, that's tied to second coming texts throughout the Bible. Luke 12, 39. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Jesus is referring to his coming. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 5, you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Talking about the day of the Lord, the unleashing of God's wrath in his return. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Revelation 16.15, I'm coming like a thief. His second coming, he's, he's not announcing it. He's not saying, hey, just so you know, it'll be tomorrow at 10 o'clock. You ever had a thief that dropped you a note and come steal your stuff? One o'clock in the morning on Monday. No, they don't do that. They don't announce it. This is another reminder. You live like he could come at any moment. I'm coming like a thief. I'm not telling you when. You better be ready. If you're not going to wake up, I'm coming. Again, I think this is his coming that's going to reveal whether our church is wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, precious stones. What's it going to be? The day will reveal it. 
And yes, Jesus provides warning and a threat of judgment. Not to discourage the church, but to say, are you a believer? Wake up. Believers will wake up. You're an unbeliever? You'll stay asleep. The thief will catch you. Judgment will find you. Say, does that sound harsh of Jesus? You, you don't whisper, run to people in a burning house, do you? You don't whisper it. You don't gently encourage people in the burning house with the benefits of leaving the house. You tell them, get out of the house now or it's going to fall in on you and you're going to die. That's what he's doing. And no one thinks, oh, you're so harsh. Don't yell like that. No, the house is burning. If you're asleep, the house is burning. If you want spiritual vibrancy, get back on this path that takes you back to spiritual life. Did you notice I have more points to go and I have no time? We'll pick it up next Lord's Day.